Sometimes a church just needs to visit a construction site. So turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. Sometimes a church needs to see people doing some manual labor, swinging hammers, using a drill. Sometimes a church needs to see people rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty. Sometimes a church needs to read an exciting and thrilling passage like Nehemiah chapter 3. So we're going to read all 32 verses as we begin. Beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakai, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baanah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, Goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and there restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethsur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hinnadad, ruler of half district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the army at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, 
the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east in the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Now, doesn't that just give you goosebumps? It's an exciting and thrilling read. It's Father's Day. And I'm a father of five kids with kid number six due in a few weeks. So would you indulge me as I tell you about one of my favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone? If you're new to grace, I do two things here. Martin Luther said you should know the gospel well and beat it into people's heads continually. That's one thing I do here at Grace. I beat the gospel into people's heads every week. The second thing I do is occasionally I beat episodes of the Twilight Zone into people's heads. So bear with me again and let me tell you about one of my favorite episodes which is called To Serve Man. As the episode opens, a man named Michael Chambers is is seen lying in this uh, interior of a spaceship, and he recalls his time back on Earth, a time when the Canimates, a nine-foot-tall species of aliens, land on the Earth, and one of them addresses the United Nations, vowing to help the human race, and Even though everyone's skeptical of this nine-foot-tall alien, in time they begin to see that he must be here to do good because uh, he cures the earth's greatest woes, including hunger, energy becomes cheap, nuclear weapons are rendered harmless. The aliens even morph deserts into blooming fields. So trust in the canimates. These nine-foot-tall aliens seems to be justified When Patty, one of Michael Chambers' uh, employees, a cryptographer of the U.S. government, she comes to Michael Chambers one day and she says, I've cracked the title of that book that Kahneman left behind. I know what it says. The cover of his book says, To Serve Man. So everyone really believes in the Kahneman's. They're here to serve mankind. And soon people are taking trips to the Kahneman's home planet out there in the universe somewhere. But Patty is still working on that book called To Serve Man. She wants to crack it and understand what it says. Well, the day arrives for Mr. Chambers. He's going to visit the Kahneman's on their planet. And just as he mounts the spaceship's boarding stairs, his staffer, Patty, appears. He waves, smiles at Patty, but Patty runs toward him in great agitation. She's held back by one of the Kahneman's, these nine-foot-tall aliens. And Patty says, Mr. Chambers, 
don't get on that ship. The rest of the book to serve man, it's, it's a cookbook. Chambers tries to run down the spaceship stairs, but a cannabis wrestles him into the ship and it immediately takes off for the alien's home planet. A classic episode. The humans on earth assumed that the book titled To Serve Man meant to serve or to assist or to help. Unfortunately, it meant to serve as a meal. A slight misunderstanding. We don't have to be invaded by nine-foot-tall aliens named cannabis who happen to be cannibals in order to be confused about serving. We can easily mess that up by ourselves. But thankfully, God in his grace has given us a chapter like this in Nehemiah to teach us about serving. Here we get a glimpse of some of the joys and sorrows of serving our fellow man for God's glory and for God's kingdom. So our big idea today is this. God sees and remembers all the puny acts of love and devotion offered to and for him. God sees and remembers all of the puny acts of love and devotion offered to and for him. I get that out of Nehemiah chapter 3 and out of its sister verse in the New Testament, which I believe is Hebrews 6.10 that Pastor James just read, which says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. It may seem like all of the small things that we do for other people's joy in God all the small things that we do for God's glory, it might seem like they're not that big of a deal. But that couldn't be further from the truth. God remembers all the puny, the small, the mundane, the ordinary, and the seemingly insignificant things that we do for his kingdom. And they are puny things that we do for him when you compare them to the fact that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He doesn't need our good works. That's what Paul says in Acts 17, verse 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything. Since he himself, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We do not serve God in, in one sense because he doesn't need anything from us. But we do serve him in another sense. But not because he needs it. God doesn't need our good works. As Martin Luther said... God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. It may seem like all the small things we do for other people, for them to find their joy in God, it may seem like all the small things that we do for God's glory aren't that big of a deal, but that couldn't be further from the truth. God remembers all the puny, small, 
mundane, ordinary, seemingly insignificant things that we do for his kingdom. And who understood this truth in Nehemiah's day? It was the spiritual leaders. After Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem and started rallying the people of God to rebuild the city walls that surrounded Jerusalem, guess who led the way? The spiritual leaders in Israel. Look at verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. As you begin reading about the rebuilding effort of Nehemiah in chapter 3, if you look at a picture, you can find them online. It starts in the northeast corner, and they work their way around counterclockwise. Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests lead the charge in rebuilding, and they start with the sheep gate. This is very instructive for us. The spiritual leaders were the first ones out of the starting blocks. They were the first to sign up and lead the way. They could have easily passed this work on to other people. They could have easily reasoned that they they were above doing manual labor. But the spiritual leaders stepped up. And we see that here at Grace. I don't know if you know it, but we have some great elders here at this church. I don't know what you've heard out there. (laughs) I don't know what you've heard out there. Take it from the horse's mouth, okay? We have some godly men who are serving as elders in this church. And they lead the charge by serving, by leading in the serving. We have elders who serve in Awana every Wednesday night. We have elders who teach Sunday school classes. An elder who has taught Sunday school class to first graders for, I think, over 21 years. We have an elder who's going to retire from the police force so that he can go be a missionary in Japan for 10 years. We have some incredible godly leaders here. So I don't know what you've heard out there in the hallways. Hear it straight from the horse's mouth. We have godly leaders here at Grace. By God's grace, and they lead the charge in serving here at Grace. You should give thanks to God for them. This is how leaders among the people of God should always function. Whether you're a high priest or a priest or a pastor, an elder, a deacon, or the man in your house, leaders in the kingdom of God are to be servants. Men, Let this verse get in your face and challenge you today. I know it does not appear exciting on the surface. I mean, you might not go here to this verse to comfort you. You might not memorize it. But man, this verse is for you. You need Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1. And since it is Father's Day, let me challenge the men that are here today. Men, we are called to be the leaders here in the church And in our families. This is the way that God designed it. And God in his sovereignty knew that we would be in Nehemiah chapter 3 on Father's Day. So if I step on your toes today, take it up with your heavenly father. Because I didn't plan this and orchestrate this. I didn't figure it out until last week. I was like, hey, it's Father's Day. 
But let this verse challenge you. Men, examine yourself right now. Ask yourself these questions. Am I leading my family in worship? Am I reading scripture with my wife and kids? Am I discipling my own children? Am I leading the charge here in serving in this church? Am I doing my part or am I being lazy when I could serve? Ask yourself those questions and then ask yourself, why should I do this? And then answer yourself with this truth. I should do this because God sees and remembers all the puny acts of love and devotion offered to and for him. Eliashib, the high priest, knew this. His fellow priests knew this, and it motivated them to serve. But not everyone embraced this truth. Not everyone believed that Yahweh would remember their puny acts of manual labor offered to and for him. Some people balked at the idea. Look at verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now, this verse can be a, a bit puzzling if you look at the footnote that may be in your Bible. My Bible has a footnote that says it could be translated lords. The Hebrew here is the, is the plural word lords. The plural form, though, of this Hebrew word is often used in the Old Testament, to express respect to a single master, to one person. And that's why the ESV reads it as capital L, Lord. You see this in Psalm 8, 9, where it says, O Lord, or O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The second Lord in that verse is Lord's. O Yahweh, our Lord's, is how it reads in Hebrew. O Yahweh, our Lord's, how majestic is all your name, is your name in all the earth. Sometimes this plural form is used to denote respect to a single master. That's what's happening here in Nehemiah 3.3 if you read that footnote. Their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord, God himself. Okay, so that solved the textual problem for us. But there's a bigger problem here in verse 3. The Tekoites would not stoop to serve their Lord. That's a big problem. It shows us that there are always people within the people of God, whether in ancient Israel or in the church today, there are always people who will not stoop to do certain things. And it manifests itself this way. I don't feel called to that ministry. I'm not gifted in that area. I'm not good with children. I'm sure the Tekoites thought they were too good to stoop and do manual labor, or they may have thought that they weren't gifted in this kind of work. And, and I get that, a part about gifting. I mean, I get that. There are times where you say, I'm really not good at that. There are men here who are way better than me at a lot of things, that are more skilled than me in certain things. I mean, who do you want working on a gas leak? Me or Gary Barron? Who do you want working on a gas leak? Me or Gary Barron? If you want to make the six o'clock news, stick me on the gas leak. Because we'll be on the news. We may not have the chops to do it all. We may not be skilled in certain areas. But we should all be serving somewhere. We should all be pulling our own weight. The point is this. Don't be a techoite. At least the leaders of the Tekoites here. Some did serve. The point is, don't be a Tekoite. Don't make excuses for not serving. 
Don't think you're above manual labor. Don't think you're above changing dirty diapers in the nursery. Don't think you're not gifted. Just get in there and serve. Make mistakes. Do a subpar job, but just do something. And you get motivated to do something by remembering that God sees and he remembers all of the puny acts of love and devotion offered to and for him. Do you struggle to serve here at church? Do you struggle to serve at home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? Well, let me challenge the men since it's Father's Day. You guys are taking a beating today, aren't you? Some of you want to give me a beat down after this sermon. Well, let me challenge you men. Men, you can help with the laundry at home. You can do dishes. You can help scrub bathtubs. You can help clean toilets. You can give baths and change diapers. You're not above it. Ladies, I give you permission to say to your husband, respectfully, you're being a techoite. I give you permission to say respectfully to your husband when he's not pulling his weight at home, honey, you're being a techoite. And then, ladies, Remind your husband, God sees and remembers all the puny acts of love and devotion offered to and for him. Remembering that the Lord remembers our acts of worship will actually prompt zeal in his people to serve. And we actually see that in a few ladies here in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halashes, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. So zeal characterized a few people in the rebuilding of the walls. Here we have a man, Shalom, who has a few daughters who got in on the rebuilding. Now, we don't know if he had sons or not. I'm going to assume that he didn't because they're not mentioned. But either way, we do know that his daughters stepped up to serve. His girls jumped in to serve. But zeal wasn't limited just to Shalom's two daughters, it appears that one man named Merimoth repaired not one but two sections of the wall. He's mentioned in two verses, verses 4 and 12. Also, a man named Meshulam helped build three sections. He's mentioned in verse 4, 6, and 30. So two girls, I'm assuming he had two girls, two girls, Shalom's daughters, helped with one section of the wall, and two men, Merimoth and Meshulam, helped with several sections of the wall. In fact, if you read Nehemiah 3 carefully, there were several others who helped in several sections of the wall. And we have some of those people here. We have some Shalom's daughters here at Grace. And we have a few Merimoths and Meshulams too. And I thank God for those of you who serve in various capacities. I thank God for you Merimoths out there. I thank God for you daughters of Shalom that are serving there are some of you that serve in several ways, just like Meshulam. But there are some of you that don't serve at all. You're just a consumer. You come, give me good music, give me good coffee, give me a good sermon. Some people are like the Tekoites. They don't serve anywhere. So why do some serve a lot and some don't serve at all? Because this kind of zeal to serve can only come from the Lord. 
because we are naturally selfish. We want to be served rather than served. But there is a way to get this kind of zeal. That's the good news. There is a way to get the zeal that characterized Shalom's two daughters and the two men, Meshulam and Merimoth. The way we get that zeal is through the good news, through rehearsing the gospel, through preaching the gospel to ourselves. I would even go so far as to say that we are commanded in God's word to get this kind of zeal. That's what Paul says in Romans 12. In Romans 12, 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, what motivates someone to serve this way? It all goes back to Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or because of God's mercy to you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's command in verse 11, to not be slothful in zeal, to be fervent in spirit, and to serve the Lord, It's a part of what it means to present your body as a living sacrifice. You wonder, how do I present my body as a living sacrifice? Well, Paul answers that question in Romans 12, verses 3 through 21. He has kind of all of these popcorn imperatives, these things he just keeps popping out, these commandments. They constitute what it means to present your body as a living sacrifice. But where does Paul base his appeal? Where are all the imperatives or the commandments rooted? Paul gives the answer when he says in Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God, because of God's mercy. Paul roots the command to not be slothful, to be fervent in spirit, to serve the Lord. He roots that in the fact that God has been merciful to sinners like you and me. Paul roots his command In the gospel, the indicative, the truth, the reality always comes before the imperative, the commandment. Romans 12, if you didn't know this, follows Romans 9 through 11. Don't know if you knew that or not. But Romans 12 actually comes after Romans 11. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul explains that God in his mercy chooses certain people to experience his salvation. Not every human being is chosen by God. God has an elect people. And if you are one of the elect, you were chosen by God. And that means he and his mercy chose you. You didn't choose him. He and his mercy chose you, a rotten, rebellious sinner who deserves only eternal punishment in hell. And because of this mercy... This hell-sparing, unmerited mercy, because of that mercy, Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then Paul later says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. The indicative, the truth, the reality is this. You were saved by the mercy of God. The imperative is this. Present your body as a living sacrifice because of that truth. Now, how do I present my body as a living sacrifice? By not being slothful, by being fervent in spirit, by serving the Lord. Understand this, Grace. Mercy motivates ministry. 
It's God's mercy to you that should motivate you and put wind in your sails to serve and do ministry. It's God's mercy that should motivate you to serve others, to serve your fellow man. And if you don't serve in any way here at Grace, I'm not going to try and guilt you into serving. I don't want to make you feel bad. I want to make you feel good. I want to make you feel good about the fact that God had mercy on you and saved you when you didn't deserve it. And then I hope that that truth permeates your heart so that you want to serve. That's what Paul's doing in Romans 12. He is highlighting the fact that mercy and grace, not guilt or a sense of duty, that motivates ministry. Mercy and grace. So Paul says these three things in Romans 12, 11 that can be glued to Nehemiah 3. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. And what Paul means by that is that we should not be lazy in serving We should be passionate about serving the Lord. We should be excited, boiling over with joy to serve other people. But that's hard to do, isn't it? Douglas Moo says in his commentary on Romans, the temptation to lose steam in our lifelong responsibility to reverence God in every aspect of our lives to become lazy and complacent in our pursuit of what is good, well-pleasing to God and perfect, is a natural one, but it must be strenuously resisted. God's mercy is designed to stir zeal in God's people for service. It was true of these ancient Israelites in Nehemiah's day, and it's true for us today. Let God's mercy to you. Not giving you what you deserve. Let God's mercy, the fact that he has spared you from eternity in hell, Christian. Let that truth motivate you to go serve others and do ministry. Strenuously resist natural complacency. And remember, God sees and remembers all the puny acts of love and devotion offered to and for him. God remembers. You know, yesterday, Tabitha, our six-year-old, said, I want to help serve. And you're just like, oh, yes. Thank you, Lord. She she just volunteered to serve. She said, I want to help. And so Heather, you know, about to pop pregnancy, is sitting on the bed trying to fold some towels because she can't stand up and fold the towels. And Tabitha's there, and she says, Daddy, look, I'm helping Mom serve. And she went and put the towels away. And then she came back and said, Daddy, I want to help you serve somewhere. So I was like, okay, we'll take the wet clothes out of the washer, put them into the dryer, and so she did that. Now, I'm gonna forget about this. She's gonna forget about this, but I believe that one day, Tabitha is gonna be with Jesus, and he's gonna say, hey, Tabs, come here, sweetie. On June 14th, 2014, you folded some towels and put them away, and you took some wet laundry out of the washer and put it into the dryer and turned the knob and hit start. And he's going to say, I remember that like it was yesterday. And she's going to be like, I did? I remember. God sees and remembers all of the very puny 
mundane, seemingly insignificant acts of love and devotion that are offered to and for him. And that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 3. It's why we get this exciting and thrilling passage. And here in Nehemiah 3, it's just a bunch of plain folks doing God's work. There's no specialist here in Nehemiah chapter 3. It's just normal people. And normal people make great servants. Commentator Edwin Yamachi tells the story of a man named Vigo Olson who helped to rebuild 10,000 homes in war-ravaged Bangladesh in 1972. Vigo Olson said that he was inspired to help rebuild these houses after reading Nehemiah chapter 3. That's crazy. This chapter inspired a man to serve the Lord. But the chapter seems so humdrum. But it is the living and active word of God, isn't it? And Olson said this about his encounter with Nehemiah chapter 3. I was struck that no expert builders were listed in this holy land brigade. There were priests, priest helpers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, and women, but no expert builders or carpenters were named. Isn't that encouraging? We don't have to be specialists or professionals. We just have to be struck by the mercy of God and remember that he won't forget even the littlest service for his kingdom. I love Nehemiah 3. It may not capture your attention Immediately, You may not run quickly to share these verses with your Bible study or prayer group. You may not go and get Nehemiah chapter 3 tattooed on your arm. You'd probably pick John 3.16 or something. It's not as stirring of a text as David versus Goliath or the fall of Jericho or Jonah and the well. But it just might turn you into a servant. It just might make you want to serve in ministry. It just might make you want to contribute. It just might make you want to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. Oh, that children's curriculum would include Nehemiah chapter 3. My kids have heard of Jonah, David, Joshua, Moses, but they need some Merimoth. They need some Meshulam in their life. They need to know about Shalom's daughters. Do your kids struggle to serve their fellow family members? Parents, mine do. And they get that from me, by the way. It's not them. Trust me, it's me. I pass that selfishness on to them. They get that from me. They get everything good from Heather. They get selfishness, laziness, and self-centeredness straight from me. But aren't kids extremely selfish and lazy today, like us adults? They don't need another rehashing of Jonah. Nothing wrong with hearing of Jonah. It's God's word. I preached through Jonah several years ago. But our children need to learn about Merimoth and Meshulam and Shalom's daughters. Maybe, parents, you can go home tonight and teach your children about the two men, Merimoth and Meshulam, and teach them about Shalom's two daughters. Why not try that out? Point them to the servants in Scripture. Point them to the Merimoths, the Nehemiahs, the Ezras, and then point them to the servant 
that they are all pointing to. Point your kids to Nehemiah and Ezra. Point them to the Merimots, the Meshulams, and Shalom's daughters, and then point them to the servant, the servant par excellence that they are all pointing toward, which is none other than God's eternal son, Jesus Christ. And then tell them, son, Merimoth was motivated by God's mercy. He was a servant. And so was Meshulam. And so was Shalom's daughters. But listen, son, a greater servant came, Jesus. And Jesus himself said this, son, in Matthew 20, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Nehemiah chapter 3 is pointing to, the greatest servant of all. God's son, Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve sinners like us and to give his life as a ransom for sinners like us. That's what Nehemiah 3 is pointing to. Who knew a seemingly boring chapter about a bunch of men and a few women doing manual labor, who knew that it could point us to Jesus God in his sovereignty knew. He knew we needed to hear these people so their names got recorded in scripture. God remembered their acts of devotion. All they did was some manual labor and they got included in God's word and that's how God works. He remembers what we do for him. As Hebrews 6.10 says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God sees and remembers all of the puny acts of love and devotion offered to and for him. Whatever you do in church here, in your home, in your neighborhood, for your neighbors, in your workplace, in this city, if you do it for his name and the good of people, he won't forget. God's keeping a list of all that you do. You have your to-do list. He has your done list that he keeps for you. He saw you changing dirty diapers in the nursery. He remembered, check. He saw you giving baths to your kids, check. He saw you changing the air filters here at church, check. He saw you greeting people at the door, check. He saw you vacuuming rooms, check. He saw you folding the bulletins each week, check. He saw you washing dishes, check. He saw you picking up trash, check. He saw you making coffee, check. You name it. You fill in the blank. If you do something for his glory and the good of his people, he will not forget. He will not overlook it. God sees and remembers all of the puny acts of love and devotion offered to and for him. And one day he will reward you for it. So don't forget why you are here in this church to serve man to serve your fellow man. As Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So look up to Christ by faith and look out to your neighbor in love. Let's pray.
Thank you for your word, Father. Seems like a boring chapter, at least on the surface. We don't get the warm fuzzies or goosebumps necessarily at the first reading of it. But if we ask your spirit to illumine our minds, we dig a little deeper and we hang out in this chapter and we roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty as we read about people rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty, then we might just come up for air and say, I found Jesus. I found Jesus in this seemingly insignificant passage. And that's what it's all about. Thank you that you sent your son. Thank you that you're merciful to sinners like us. May we rehearse that truth often and then go and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.